Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. And today we are looking back to the Second World War and one of my favorite prime ministers to study, William Lyon Mackenzie King. He is an interesting figure, very complicated personal life to try to understand in the context of his public life. He's somebody who, given my area of study with Canadian broadcasting in the 1930s, he is central to a lot of the discussions that are had, particularly when you look at the 1935 federal election that he and the Liberal Party win, and then they restructure the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission and create the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. A lot of that was based off of some personal animosity that he had stemming from some events during the 1935 election and things that went out over the radio. Just a a really fascinating figure to study in that context. And of course, into the Second World War. And he was Canada's prime minister throughout. And there's a new book that is coming out next month that looks to explore Mackenzie King's role in the Second World War, particularly with a focus on his relationships with Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the ways in which he helped facilitate Anglo-American relations during the Second World War. It's entitled The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships that Won World War II, written by Neville Thompson. He is a professor emeritus from Western, and this book uses some of Mackenzie King's diaries, which are just a, a very rich source, to say the least, and explores how King situated himself internationally during the war. A lot of the attention on Mackenzie King is about his domestic efforts, particularly in the Second World War in the context of conscription, for instance. But he was very much a diplomatic figure during the Second World War, used the personal relationships he had with Churchill and Roosevelt, who didn't really have a a close relationship with each other, didn't know each other particularly well. Mackenzie King used the fact that he had positive relationships with the two of them to engage diplomatically and secure a seat for Canada in a lot of these discussions. So just a fascinating figure. And Neville Thompson in the book does a tremendous job demonstrating how Mackenzie King emphasized this diplomatic role during the Second World War. So we'd certainly encourage everybody to check out the book. I had the pleasure of talking to Neville Thompson. We talked about the book. We talked about Mackenzie King, the focus on the domestic, his role internationally and the diplomatic effort that he put forth during the Second World War. We spoke over the phone and there was a couple of times where the connection got a little choppy, but I think I cleaned it up as well as we could. Really enjoyed the discussion. Very excited for everybody to take a listen to it. So let's get right to my discussion with Neville Thompson. Neville Thompson joining us today. Neville, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. And I hope you are too. I am. Thank you. Uh, Again, the title of the book, as I said in the intro, is The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships 
that won World War II. Neville, this is something that I'm particularly interested in because as somebody who studies the 1930s myself, I am very much invested in understanding more about Mackenzie King. So I'm excited to get into the book. I'm interested you started in the 1930s because that's exactly where I did. Uh, the first thing I, uh, first piece of research and book uh, was on the uh, critics of appeasement in uh, Britain. And yeah, it's such an interesting decade, right? Like, so I know for me, it's there's just so much going on culturally, economically, socially, politically, that it makes it really interesting for me. I really love the pop culture of the 1930s. I find it so fascinating. So for you, what really stands out from the decade as something that hooked you early on in your career? Well, I, I'm not so interested in pop culture as you say you are. I was primarily interested uh, in international uh, relations, and in particular the uh, origins of the Second World War, which when I began, this is almost 60 years ago now since I was a graduate student, that was a very hot uh, topic uh, because, uh, well, partly because it wasn't so long in the past, partly because of a very provocative book by A.J.P. Taylor, and partly because a lot of archives were then becoming uh, open the customary uh, archives were customary closed uh, for 50 years in uh, Britain, also in Canada, uh, and until until 1967 when the British moved it down to uh, 30 years, and other countries uh, followed. Uh, so that that was my interest at that uh, moment. I've since ranged onto other things, a couple of books on the early 19th century, uh, and so on. Now I'm back in the 20th century, obviously. So this book it really focuses on, I mean, the title indicates, right, the third man is Mackenzie King, and, and there's this relationship between Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt that does get a lot of attention in the historiography, in the literature. Why do you think that relationship between those two figures has gotten so much attention, whereas the Mackenzie King part has been somewhat left to the side, as you note in the book? You know, what is that focus on the Anglo-American relationship? Why is that so strong? Well, there is a lot of historiography in the book, but it's uh, in the uh, footnotes. This is uh, uh, um, not an academic book, uh, but a trade publication, uh, so it, it wouldn't be appropriate to have a lot of discussion of uh, historiography uh, in it. Um, but what I'm trying to do is to uh, put Mackenzie King onto the international stage into the relationship three-way relationship between uh, Churchill, Roosevelt, and uh, King. I think I've sort of lost your original question now, if that doesn't answer it. Uh, well, well, I guess, like, why do you think that Mackenzie King isn't included in this story normally? I mean, the book does a really good job focusing on how he was such a, a really solid diplomat, and yet people tend to overlook him when yes. when thinking about the, the Allied side. And why do you think that is? Yes, that's particularly true in uh, Canada. Uh, I mean, in a sense, uh, it, it almost seems that uh, Canada's contribution to the Second World War was in spite of rather than uh, owing to uh, Mackenzie King. Well, for one thing, of course, he wasn't a very heroic figure. At the time of Roosevelt and Churchill, both of whom looked like heroes, sounded like heroes, had a great ability to project their personalities and so on. King had nothing of this. So to some extent, he was disconsidered even at the time. And he himself 
was sort of aware of this. He was always uh, wishing that he could be uh, as great a figure as uh, Roosevelt or Churchill within the Canadian uh, context. And so, uh, so I think that's part of it. Uh, um. how, how much of that domestic, uh, maybe dismissiveness of him, is, is any of that related to his communication style? And certainly in Canada at the time, People did have access to Roosevelt's fireside chats over the radio. Yes. Churchill is this larger-than-life figure, and Mackenzie King never really established himself, as far as I know, as a great orator, a great communicator no. with the public. How much, how much of that right. is part of this? Yes, I think that's a big part of it. He, he never really could uh, be a great orator, either in the formal sense, which Churchill was very good, or the informal sense, as you just said, in the fireside chats of the... Uh, of uh, Roosevelt. He envied them that, but he could never do it. And to some extent, he bemoaned the fact that he didn't have good enough assistance uh, to help him with him. But even if he'd had very good assistance, Mackenzie King, he often regretted that he didn't have the literary culture of Churchill in particular, though Roosevelt, to some extent, both of them, of course, were great readers. But more than that, they had a sense of the rhythm of language and what could uh, communicate. So, so that's a big part of it. And you're quite right, of course. Uh, the Canadians could easily uh, hear Roosevelt's uh, fireside chats and also uh, Churchill's uh, speeches, uh, which were rebroadcast in Canada uh, from uh, Britain. And even when Churchill didn't broadcast a speech, his speech, often uh, sort of big excerpts from his speeches, would be broadcast. Uh, so so they, they were, uh, Canadians were um, sort of very impressed by that. Uh, I'm not so impressed by Mackenzie King, so that's part of it. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't a good manager. It's hard to think of anyone at the time who could have done any better. That's perhaps not saying a lot, but it's saying uh, something, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's and, and I think it's true that you know he did a very good job of managing it. And the other thing, in terms of the domestic sphere and the way people thought of it. Does conscription come up into this story as well, and his and, and sort of trying to manage the yeah. linguistic divide in this country? Does yeah. that contribute to a maybe lack of consideration of him as a great leader? Yes, it does, because of course the country was very divided on conscription, but not as divided as it was in the First World War, and it was a very high priority of Mackenzie King to make sure that the country did not become so divided. Uh, socially, politically, on conscription that it had in the First World War. At the beginning of the war, in September 1939, uh, the reason that Canada could go, could go into war uh, relatively united was the solemn promise by Mackenzie King and his Quebec Lieutenant Ernest Lapointe uh, that, they, uh, that the Canadians would not have uh, conscription. By 1944, it seemed as though the issue would never arise. Many people kept telling Mackenzie King, even after, especially after D-Day in June uh, 1944, that the war would not go on much longer. There was no need for Canadian conscription. This was told to him by his uh, military advisors. It was told to him by people out of uh, the country who presumably knew about this at the Quebec conference in uh, September 19. Uh, uh, 44, uh, various authorities told him that the war was going to be over by the end of the year. One of the few who disagreed with this 
with Winston Churchill, who had been uh, skeptical about the Second Front anyway. He wanted to keep the uh, uh, main uh, effort uh, against continental Europe in the Mediterranean. Churchill thought that it would go on until 1945, perhaps till the summer of 1945. But he also thought that it would dwindle, that, uh, uh, that, there, that there wouldn't be many big battles after the end of 1944. So in September 1944, Mackenzie King uh, could sort of feel relieved uh, that the issue of conscription wasn't going to come up. And then suddenly, a few weeks later, when the war uh, in France and the Low Countries wasn't going as well as uh, some people have predicted, uh, then it was felt that conscription was necessary. Whether conscription actually was necessary or not is still, of course, a very moot uh, point. But what Mackenzie King did was to introduce conscription uh, in a small, uh, for overseas service, in a small uh, way as he could, and managed it to do as little uh, political and social damage as he could which may not be very heroic, but it's a great achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, there were some cases where there was a, a protest in Montreal, for instance, that, yeah. that there was some damage done uh, around yeah. the city. But yeah. overall, you're right, not not as yeah. contentious as what we saw, certainly, you know, around that 1917 election, for instance. So in terms of managing that, much better. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were mutinies among the troops in uh, British Columbia, too. But all the, all these, uh, uh, including the protests in Montreal, so were, were relatively muted compared to the uproar of the uh, First World War. So in that sense, Mackenzie King handled it as well as anybody could. So again, this is not heroic, perhaps, but it's good management. It's hard to see how Churchill or Roosevelt could have handled it much better. And while we're on the subject, I mean, Britain, of course, had conscription uh, even before the war began, just a few months before. But it was never extended to Northern Ireland, where the Catholic population uh, would have been opposed to it. Uh, Churchill kept threatening throughout the war to extend conscription to Northern Ireland, but he never did so. And in the other dominions, the only place where there was conscription for overseas service was New Zealand. Australia had it in a very limited sense for the areas around Australia, uh, but not far from the uh, country. So, so Canada was really not very far out of line. There was no chance that there could be conscription in uh, South Africa, whether the divisions were severe between the uh, Afrikaners and the uh, uh, sort of English uh, British settlers. So if we look at the relationship now between Churchill, Roosevelt, and King, the, the book posits that King was a linchpin and really tried to serve as almost as a sort of a go-between, if you will, between yeah. the Americans and the British. So what was his strategy as a diplomat to try to find his way in there at a time where Canada, of course, is still trying to establish itself internationally as an independent yeah. country, as, as, as a party, as an equal party to these other nations. So what was his strategy yeah. to build this relationship with Churchill and Roosevelt? Okay. Well, you say Canada was trying to establish itself as an independent country, but that's only true to a limited extent. That's to some extent reading history backwards. Mackenzie King wanted an independent Canada, but he also wanted it to be part 
of the Commonwealth, a term, by the way, he didn't like. He preferred uh, empire, probably uh, because he'd implied, or he thought it implied, uh, some kind of uh, common policy, and he was uh, very strongly against it. Uh, he thought the Commonwealth ought to be uh, a group of countries which shared a common heritage, common values, and which acted together when they wanted to. Uh, so, for example, he had no criticism of Ireland, which was technically a uh, dominion. The Commonwealth was a kind of counterweight to the United States. Uh, but what he wanted was good relationship between the three countries of the Atlantic uh, Triangle. And he supported Churchill uh, in this. Anything that would uh, produce good relations uh, between the three, close relations, without the domination either of Britain or the United States of Canada uh, was, 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 he was in favor of. But you can see that that's a kind of difficult balancing act and so on. But he carried it out pretty well. For me, it's a question of, for King, visioning or seeing Canada in this way, what then is his next step to find himself as uh, this linchpin between Churchill and Roosevelt? So what is his strategy to connect to those two leaders and secure his place within this relationship? Well, one of the uh, uh, big elements in this was the fact that he knew the two of them uh, so very well, even before the war began. War in Europe beginning, of course, in 1939, the war, you know, the war until Pearl Harbor in 1941. But Churchill and King had known each other since 1900 when they met in Ottawa, and they've been friends uh, since 1906 when King went to uh, Britain on a uh, mission. That doesn't mean that King always agreed with Churchill, uh, just the contrary. Uh, he opposed Churchill's uh, idea of a unified empire. Uh, he opposed Churchill's opposition to appeasement in the late 1930s. Mackenzie King was desperate uh, to avoid another world war uh, like the First World War 20 years after, as many people uh, were. And he saw Churchill as a great warmonger, a great uh, uh, sort of enemy uh, to peace and uh, to the uh, British Empire uh, until uh, the war uh, came. But once the war began, even uh, during the phony war uh, in the fall of 1939 and uh, spring of 1940, when the war was mostly at sea and Churchill was in charge of the British Navy, his admiration uh, grew. And after Churchill became prime minister, after some hesitation, uh, King was convinced uh, that he was the man uh, for the job. So they had a long relationship uh, going back. Uh, for 40 years before the war. In the case of Roosevelt, uh, King had known him uh, since 1935, uh, almost from the moment that King was re-elected as prime minister in that year, when the two got together uh, for a trade deal, uh, which both of them wanted, partly because King had uh, promised it during the election, and Roosevelt because he wanted to get it out of the way before uh, the midterm elections of 1936. Uh, they became great friends almost immediately. This is a trade deal which involved a certain amount of risk uh, for both of them because it meant more uh, manufactured goods coming into Canada from the United States. It meant more agricultural goods from Canada going into uh, the United States. Uh, this meant, of course, that there was criticism of King from the Canadian manufacturers, criticism of Roosevelt, 
from the agricultural interests. Indeed, the Republicans in the election of 1936 promised to repeal this arrangement if they got uh, into power. Uh, the two states that uh, Roosevelt lost in 1936, only two, were Maine and Vermont, and these were ones that were most affected uh, by the uh, agricultural imports. Uh, so this is the beginning of their relationship, this trade deal which offered some advantages, but also uh, risks for both. Uh, King often went to visit Roosevelt, usually stayed at the White House uh, before uh, the war began. And he was very disappointed in 1939. He thought it was unchivalric uh, for the United States got not to go to war uh, with uh, Canada for the defense of uh, Britain, which was a totally unrealistic uh, uh, hope and so on. But uh, he, he thought perhaps the United States might have gone to war, should have gone to war. And, and how important then is those, or are those two years before the United States enters the war? Because I'm by no means an expert on this, but my understanding is that the United States is almost using Canada as the way to offer support to the war effort while officially being neutral. So how important is is that period of time for Mackenzie King to increase the relationship and, as you say in the book, serve as that linchpin within Anglo-American relations? Yeah, th th those two years were very important because, as I say, King knew the, t <clears throat> knew the two of them well. Roosevelt and Churchill really didn't know each other. They had met just very briefly in 1918. Uh, when Roosevelt thought that uh, Churchill had snubbed him. Churchill didn't even remember the meeting until uh, the Second World War uh, refreshed his uh, memory. So they didn't meet until uh, August 1941 at the Atlantic Conference in ships off uh, Newfoundland. But they were in correspondence almost from the beginning of the uh, war. But the person who did know the two uh, was, was, uh, was King, and he could act as an intermediary uh, between them. For example, on the important issue, it never came to that, of what would happen to the Royal Navy if Britain fell in the same way as France. And Roosevelt was very concerned uh, to, uh, to make sure that the Royal Navy uh, did not fall uh, to uh, Germany. It never came to that. Uh, but King played an important part in uh, trying to work out a relationship in which the Royal Navy will be saved but would not simply fall how important are those personal relationships in building those? I mean, the, the book, the subtitle of the book mentions that it's these relationships that won the Second World War. And for you, as someone who studies this stuff, you, you know, you, you think of as the, the military side of it, the alliances and the battlefield and all that. But how important are these relationships between leaders that allow for greater cooperation between the countries to effectively prosecute a war like this? Does it really come down to personalities and the ability to communicate with each other at the highest level? Well, it doesn't entirely come down to it. Uh, Mackenzie changed confidence in Roosevelt and Churchill uh, that really enabled him to leave the running of the war uh, to those uh, two figures and their military advisors. His argument being that on sort of big policy about the invasion of Europe or uh, the uh, Second Front versus the Mediterranean and so on. These were countries uh, which were far better equipped uh, to make these decisions than uh, Canada. But he wanted Canada to, to be informed whenever it was involved. 
And the Americans and British had huge numbers of people involved in these kind of policy things. There were 9,000 British representatives in Washington during the Second World uh, War. What Mackenzie King, uh, even if he'd insisted and tried and managed to uh, sort of get into uh, sort of higher policy making, what what he would have done is very difficult to know. My, he would almost certainly have supported Churchill, which means that he would have uh, uh, supported a strong effort in the Mediterranean, uh, being skeptical about an invasion across the channel of Churchill was. He certainly expressed that view often enough. So in in doing so, did he himself feel as though he was having a, a real influence on Roosevelt and Churchill? And did he feel it? Did he express that? I know he used the diary a lot. Does he talk about having... Uh, an impact on the relationship and feeling as though he's making a significant contribution? Yes, he was. He, 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 had, he may not have been involved in the technical uh, staff talks and the higher strategy, but he was involved in many discussions uh, with Roosevelt and uh, Churchill over meals and formal occasions and so on. He was with them in 1943 when they were dreaming uh, about running the world through what became uh, the United Nations. That, of course, never happened. That was what they were uh, thinking, that they were going to use it as their, their instrument. They, of course, were sure that they were going to be running their own countries after the war, which didn't happen. Roosevelt, of course, died. Churchill was voted out of office. Uh, so they thought they were running the world through this new organization. And Mackenzie King, they thought, would be the ideal person who would be the troubleshooter uh, for so that, in a sense, you know, that in a great sense gives you an idea of their high estimation of him. He is this such a, an an interesting figure, and you know, I mentioned the the diaries in that last question. What is it like as a historian? I've gone through the diaries a little bit, not not in any great detail, but what is it like going through that diary? And was it difficult to pull out material from it, given how Mackenzie King? is known to be an, a somewhat a peculiar figure with some of his uh, personal interests. What, what, just what was that experience like in trying to draw out material from such a rich source? Mackenzie King's diaries are very full. I mean, he dictated them from 1935. Uh, and he would often, you know, go on a great things about things, uh, repeating things, putting in things out of order, and so on. So there is a great mass of material that has to be pulled out. These were not uh, summaries of events. They were sort of uh, rambling uh, accounts of them. But it's very interesting uh, information in there, even the incidental information which it provides. He has a huge amount, for example, of uh, the appearance of Churchill and Roosevelt, whether they looked ill, whether they looked fit, whether they're in a good mood, whether they're in a bad mood, uh, and so on. And these are very valuable uh, sort of records of their meetings uh, together. One American historian, he, started, he was originally British, uh, but he's now an American, Nigel Hamilton, has used these diaries, not the Pickers Gill uh, excerpts, the four volumes, uh, but the diaries themselves very effectively in three volumes on uh, Roosevelt as a military strategist, which means mean, mainly uh, the clash between Roosevelt and Churchill 
over the Mediterranean rather than the, uh, 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 the, the across the uh, Channel. So, so King's diaries then are sort of in in a way, it's, you, you have to fish the material out because I mean the book can't be that long. Uh, but 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 the incidental inf- in information is very interesting. Once you start reading uh, King's diaries, they are more fascinating than you would think. I mean, he was not a great literary stylist. He doesn't have many great turns of phrases, but he got so much interesting information about so much stuff uh, that they are compelling reading. I, I think if the diaries uh, were published, of course, they they probably won't be now, but they are online. But if they'd been published on in uh, printed volumes, I think a lot of people would have read them for all sorts of purposes uh, and found lots of interesting things in them. Yeah, I completely agree that there's a lot there. There's he's just such an interesting figure and uh, very fulsome, as you say, and and somebody who just great observations about what was going on around him uh, and, and the way he saw the world. So for anyone who's coming to the book, what do you hope that they get out of it? I mean, I think a lot of people like me will come to this and with with an interest in Mackenzie King already. But for, for you as the person who was writing it, what do you hope an audience takes away when they read this book? I hope they see Mackenzie King on the world stage which he was. I mean, he was definitely the third man in the uh, Atlantic uh, Triangle, but he was a very important figure. Uh, he was uh, more important and more highly regarded by Churchill and Roosevelt than de Gaulle, on whom there are many books. Uh, de Gaulle had very little uh, to offer. He was a very important figure. So I'm trying to put Mackenzie Kane on the world stage. I'm also trying to draw attention uh, to his diaries, which are full of all kinds of things. This isn't the last book on the subject, uh, but I hope it helps uh, to open it up a bit. And I hope it helps uh, Canadians to realize that Mackenzie King was not just a kind of non-entity. He was not a hero. No one can make him a hero. But he was an extremely effective manager, defender of uh, Canada's interests, a great contributor uh, to the uh, Second World War, uh, and one of the authors of Victory. And we certainly encourage everybody to pick up the book for that reason. And again, it's The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships That Won World War II. Neville Thompson, Professor Emeritus at the University of Western Ontario. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much, Sean. I enjoyed talking to you. So there you have it. My conversation with Neville Thompson. Again, the book is The Third Man, Churchill, Roosevelt, Mackenzie King, and the Untold Friendships that won World War II. So definitely encourage everybody to check that one out. As Neville said during our discussion, it is a trade book, not an academic book. So it does have a bit of a different tone from what you might expect from some of the university presses. Really enjoyed it. I found it very engaging. Now, I do have a personal interest, of course, in Mackenzie King and the role he played during this era. But I think it's written in a way that's engaging. And and folks, even if you're not typically someone who reads about the Second World War, I think you will enjoy it. So encourage everybody to check it out. So that will do it for this week. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show wherever it is. 
you get your podcast do the likes the ratings comments all that good stuff helps us beat the algorithm and allows other people to find the show keeps us growing and of course as always do head on over to activehistory.ca check out all the great content over there as january's gotten off to a great start on the site so certainly encourage everybody to check that out and if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show please feel free to reach out get in touch history slam at gmail.com you can also find me on twitter at the sean graham so we will be back with you again next week but until then if you're out and you see enrico palazzo please say hi for me Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.